0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Taxi Taxi, written by Clarence Buddington-Kelland. Her brother went to war to fight for his country. She stayed home to fight for his business. She was her brother's keeper. When Maggie McTigge's brother, Michael McTigge, went off to fight in World War II, he left his taxicab company in her hands. As the only member of the family with a lick of business sense, he asked her to keep it running while he was gone. Maggie took it as a sacred trust, her own contribution to the war efforts, and resolved that it would still be operating when the conflict was over. He was finally demobbed and returned home, no matter what it took and what she had to do. Since most men were off fighting, she hired women drivers to fill their slots. And when she found out how the drunken men they picked up after hours acted, Maggie hired the toughest women she could find to drive. And that settled the late-night male passengers down more than a bit. When the rival cab company, run by mobsters, started sabotaging her brother's taxis, Maggie fought fire with fire, and the rival's cabs were out of commission for days. But when a man was gunned down just outside her office over... More than five and less than ten millions, Maggie wonders if at last she might be getting in over her head. Just how far will a woman go to keep her soldier brother's heritage alive for him until the war is over? Meet Maggie McTig, an outspoken, zany, endearing, and fearless woman, and a classic Kelland heroine. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Taxi Taxi.
1: Part 1. The little city of Halesburg had erected in its park a huge boarding upon which were printed the names of its young men who had been removed from private industry to take their places in the armed forces of the United States. Among these names was that of Michael McTigge, which is why his sister, Maggie McTig, was sitting in the grimy cubbyhole of an office at the front of the garage of the McTig Taxicab Company. There were numerous McTiggs, including the old man himself, the old lady, three boys, and four girls, to say nothing of collateral relatives, and what belonged to one belonged to all. Except that none of them ever had anything to divide until Mike developed a highly uncharacteristic and baffling streak of industry, which resulted in the ownership of five ramshackle taxicabs. After that, the other McTigs practically abandoned all pretense of gainful toil. The world did not lose any tremendous reservoir of labor because of this. Ever since Maggie could remember, the family had known more meal times than meals, although some member, by some means, was always bringing in a stray dollar. In winter, they seldom went shivering because seven kids can lug home from the railroad yards of substantial supply of coal, and the old lady, no matter how cluttered up the house might be with children, always seemed to find room for a boarder. The young ones acquired a certain artful adroitness in evading truant officers and education, and the old man could and did drink his beer like a man. Then Mike upset the family tradition by manifesting ability to keep a job, and Maggie developed a restlessness which was a distant relative of ambition. Mike's strange penchant for work resulted in taxicabs and Maggie's restlessness got her into the chorus of an inferior musical show at the age of 16 and gave her a desire for the better things of life, as they were disclosed to her in her travels. Her ideas of the better things of life were somewhat exotic, but she developed in addition to a self-protective shrewdness, a vocabulary, a certain humorous detachment, and a weakness for gathering in stray dogs. But even with the neatest pair of legs ever to go out from Halesburg, she was not destined for theatrical greatness. She lived in a state of exasperation with her family and squabbled with them, but never seemed to find a remunerative market for her talents. Maggie stood between Mike and the raids of the rest of the family. They were allies, and it was due to her astuteness and choice of words that the old man was prevented from selling Mike's first taxi cab to take the whole family on a trip to the seashore, which none of them had ever seen. The family resented this because it had been normal conduct to regard all possessions as community property. If any McTig required a piece of movable property of the value of more than five dollars, Some other member invariably took it to the pawn shop if he needed a case of beer or the price to take his girl to a picture show, or merely for the pleasure of converting it into cash. Hence, when Mike was snatched by the draft board, he turned to Maggie as the one possible means of conserving his assets during his absence. Maggie moved in, took command, and the in family council declared her to be as hard as nails and a cruel, unnatural relative. The first major problem Maggie was called upon to solve was manpower. The draft boards were not content with taking Mike away. One by one, the drivers departed to induction centers, and something had to be done. Maggie hired girls to replace them, and because she wanted no monkey business, she hired them brawny and homely and tough. At the end of 90 days, it was an all-feminist concern. Business was good, and Maggie worked 16 hours a day. At this time, she had reached the age of 24, was almost wholly without formal education, though through listening and imitation she could speak what passed for a decent conversational English when she was in company capable of appreciating it. This was entirely by ear. She admired educated people and read books, some of which she understood. Because the art museum was free, she had wandered through it frequently— But, musically, she lived in the limbo of swing. As for personal appearance, she had considerable of it in an individual sort of way. She was an inch over five feet tall, and from the chin down she could have competed with the Ellen of Troy. From the chin up was a different matter. She was not exactly homely. Nobody ever called her monkey face. Her mouth was large to match her natural generosity. Her eyes were almond-shaped and tipped a trifle upward at the outer corners. She had a way of listening with her lips slightly parted, which made her seem eager and alive. On the whole, it was a mischievous face, keen and young, and her teeth were white and even and beautiful. No girl could be homely if she has a slightly large mouth and the kind of teeth that set off a smile. Her hair was whatever color the whim of the month dictated, She had a curious charm, and before her taxicab days, you were likely to encounter her unexpectedly. Her entertainment value was high, and she had a talent for knowing people. You would not be surprised to find that she knew the cop on the beat, and the boss at the local rackets, and the elite on the wrong side of the river. But you'd be taken aback to find her one of the guests at a dinner given by the unmarried and grumpy president of the First National Bank in his perfect apartment, or an intimate of the city's most eminent painter of portraits. In short, she might turn up anywhere and be the confidential friend of the host or hostess. Even she did not know how these things happened. Maybe it started because she had posed for the artist and had met his friends. Anyhow, there it was. Conversationally, she was not impeded by repressions. Her tongue was sharp, but it could be gentle. Inhibitions passed her by. It might be that she delighted to shock, and certainly she popped out with words that were not smiled upon by polite usage. There were times when she was crude, or what would have been crude in any other girl. In Maggie, it was naturalness, and somehow you accepted it as part of her context. You wouldn't say it yourself, but it tickled you to have her blurted out. But if she had one characteristic that stood out above all others, it was that she inspired confidence and trust. You knew that in human relations, she would be reliable. Men liked to have her around because they knew she would never take advantage or let them down. And what went into her ear never came out her mouth. There was a sort of puppy-like fidelity, and though she was distinctly alive and vivid and feminine, she had a capacity for male friendships on a strictly friendship basis. Gentlemen knew that she would never get them in a jam. At any rate, no party ever died on its feet if she was a guest. It was well after midnight. Two of the five taxicabs had come in and been put to bed. Maggie, heavy eyed, was checking over the reports of the drivers. A third cab rattled into the incline and went back into its berth in the shadowy garage. Presently, the driver stood in the office door, swinging a brown leather briefcase in her grimy hand. "'Hi, Maggie,' she said. "'Hi, Toots. Why the expensive baggage?' "'Somebody left it in the cab.' She distorted her broad face in a grimace of distaste. "'Everybody I carried since ten o'clock was fried.' "'Have any trouble?' One look at my puss, Toots said, and trouble takes a powder. No way of identifying what passenger left the loot? Nix May have been anybody. Maggie unfastened the briefcase to examine its contents for a clue to ownership. They were a curious lot, though not revealing. There was a Gideon Bible, obviously filched from some hotel. There was a clipping from a New York morning paper. There was a thirty-two caliber automatic pistol. The only other article was a full-length photograph of a woman with a bitter mouth, her exotic beauty only scantily concealed by the briefest of costumes. Maggie spread the items on her desk. She touched the Bible and the gun. Pistol-packin' Parson, she said. That ain't no Sunday school teacher, Toots said, lifting the photograph to stare at it. Maggie was reading the clipping. It bore a foreign date line and was five weeks old. The city was Tsenia. The body of a man mutilated beyond recognition was found floating on the Zeus River today. It was identified by the uniform and decorations as that of Iskander Gorob, Hitler's quizzling ruler of Carpathia. Authorities regard the identification as verified by the fact that Gorob has vanished. It is the theory of the police that Gorob was assassinated by Carpathian partisans. Laura Deasy's beautiful English mistress of the puppet dictator also has vanished, and it is believed she shared Goreb's fate. She was bitterly hated by the peasantry and mountaineers. Gorb, youngest of the Quislings, was only 34 years of age. There was more of it, to the length of a column, detailing the career of the young man who had risen from the position of lieutenant in the army to that of ruler of the nation under Nazi domination. A paragraph was devoted to Laura Deces, dancer, who had abandoned her nationality to attach herself to the fortunes of the youthful ruler. "'What?' asked Toots. "'Is a quisling. I never got around to ask.' "'A quizzling, Maggie said, is a rat. A dirty rat.' "'I went to a picnic with one of them Carpathians,' Toots said musingly. "'They shoot off bows and arrows at a mark.' He was a glass blower. All Carpathians is glass blowers. When they go out to get a skinful, they wear short pants with embroidery. Fourth Ward is crawling with them. They all work out at the glass works. Does one of them ever offer you a glass of the stuff they drink? You start to scream and run for the nearest exit. The ape that lost this briefcase was probably one of them, Maggie said. That accounts for the clipping. But why the Bible? Carpathians are some kind of heathen mugs that duck the bean to images. Toots was disgorging cash on the desk. She shrugged. Leave them to assassinate each other till they wade in it, she said. I'm for a hamburger and onions and a stretch of shut-eye. Maggie put the cash and briefcase in the ancient iron box that passed for a safe, elevated her feet to the desktop, closed her eyes, and awaited the checking in of the two remaining cabs. Within fifteen minutes, the cabs drove in. Maggie put the receipts in the safe after the driver said good night, and wearily reached for her hat. It had been a long day, and there still remained a walk of many blocks between her tired body and the comfort of her bed. She fumbled in her handbag for the keys to the office and garage and dragged herself to the door. A man was standing on the threshold. Whoa, babe, he said. She eyed his broad, dumpy body and unshaven face with disfavor, but without alarm. "'Where's the cat?' she asked sharply. "'What cat?' "'The one that dragged you out of the pail. "'No dice. I'm a panhandler myself.' "'Listen, babe, I'm riding in one of your hacks tonight.' "'Not,' said Maggie, "'if our driver saw you first.' "'I'm riding in one of your cabs,' repeated the man.' and I get out, absent-minded, leave my bag. Incredible as it seemed, it might be true. This might be the owner of the briefcase. He did not look like the owner of a briefcase, but in these days of opulent defense workers, one could never tell. Maybe he had bought it to carry his wages in. Yeah, she said, so you left a bag. What kind? Did the broad turn it in? What kind of a bag and what was in it? It was a leather bag, like mouthpiece's tote, he said. Gimme it. If you ever owned a briefcase, then my old man is an earl, she said. What was inside of it? Papers and sitch, he said. Was there a big envelope with stamps on it and some letters from Ireland? That's the one, babe. Let's have it. Try someplace else. We're all sold out. He grinned, showing irregular yellow teeth. "'I know you got it, girlie. "'I know the number of the cab I left it in. "'I know it was brung here. "'I got no time to argue. "'Hand it over.' "'In his hand was a gun, "'and it pointed at her stomach, "'which gave her an uncomfortable feeling. "'You got a convincing argument there,' she said. "'Is it a stick-up?' "'Open the box,' he snarled. "'Maggie shrugged. "'She walked across the room, "'twirled the knob to the safe and opened the door.' She snatched out the briefcase and slammed the door again upon the cash contents of the safe. The man made no protest, which was wholly out of character. He reached a hand with broken, grimy nails for the case and took it from her. Anyhow, she said, sign a receipt. I never learned to write, he said, and swinging on his heel, he lurched out of the office and started to run up the street. Maggie stood ruefully listening to his retreating footsteps, when there came a sound like that of an exploding tire, only sharper and more startling. She darted through the door and looked in the direction the footsteps had taken. There, fifty feet away, the man lay sprawled, face down upon the sidewalk, and the taillight of a car was vanishing around the next corner. Maggie, very small in her khaki pullover, stood in the dim light from the garage, and the wind blew her hair about her face. Her hair was a sort of ginger color this month. The strong breeze promised a cooling storm. She was not surprised that she thought about breezes and storms when a man lay on the sidewalk half a hundred feet away, because she frequently found herself thinking about unimportant matters which had nothing to do with what was going on, especially if what was happening was important. She always seemed to be trying to escape from the important. She should call the police or an ambulance. But before that, maybe she should find out how badly the man was hurt. Not that she owed him any favors. Then, before she could do either, a young man was standing beside her. She had not heard him approach, and it was his voice that told her of his presence. "'You don't,' he said. "'Just stand and stare.' you do something. Maybe you only scream. She looked up and up. He was a tall young man, somewhat bowed at the top, as if from habitually stooping to pass through doors, or just because he was too lazy to hold himself erect. His voice sounded as if he were too lazy. He had a long face, too, that was too lazy to show interest. Where, she demanded, did you bob up from? "'It wouldn't matter,' he said in the same exasperatingly disinterested voice. "'You're a small peg to fit into this big hole. "'When they fall that way, they're dead. "'Friend of yours?' "'A panhandler,' she said. "'Why lie to Papa? Makes no difference. "'He came to call on you with empty hands and left bare in a briefcase. "'But go on. I never expect anybody to tell me the truth.' I'd rather they didn't. If you'd rather we can turn out the lights in the garage and fade quietly away. Someone'll find him. You'd be surprised how noticeable a corpse on a sidewalk is. Aren't you up pretty late anyhow? Did you shoot him? Maggie asked. I don't object to questions unless they're silly, he said. Very few girls look well in pants. You do. Have you made up your mind about your immediate plans? I'll call the cops, she said. What nut college did you graduate from? She turned, and her little heels rapped on the cement she walked into the garage and turned through her office door. She lifted the telephone and dialed. Presently, a male voice said, Police headquarters. Who's on tonight? she asked. Lieutenant Shemansky. Gimme him, she directed and in a moment, as a second voice said hello over the wire, Hi, Lieutenant. Maggie Matig. Somebody just fogged a bomb outside. I'll wait in the office. Be with you, said Lieutenant Schmansky. You have a wide acquaintance, said the tall young man, who had taken the other chair, in which he sat approximately on his shoulder blades with his legs a-sprawl. What's it to you? she asked impertinently for she was very tired and annoyed and a little shaken. To me, nothing. Ah, Maggie Matig, is it? Delighted. My own name is Dougal, maybe. And maybe not, she snapped. Not good. Not up to what I would guess is your usual level. Now one wonders, are you a Gabby, little Mick? you tell all in a gush of candor, or do you hold a little back for a nest egg? And what would I be holding back? Well, there are people who would build up a tale about a man who came in after a piece of property, probably lost in a taxicab. She might run on about what was in the briefcase, an itemized list of contents, and how the briefcase in question neglected to be in the dead man's possession when you ran out to look. You could make a dandy story out of it and maybe fire the torpid imagination of this Lieutenant Schmansky, Or, she asked, her grayish-green eyes glinting, or you could be less lavish with the details. You could state, which is a fact, that you heard a sound that might have been a shot, and went out to look, and it was a shot, because there was a shootee dead upon the flagging. Period. What line do you take? Briefcase, said Maggie. Yes? If, said Maggie, there was a briefcase, I'm the only one in this party that would be apt to know about it. How come you were hept to the leather? His face wore a look of pain surprise. Obvious, he said. The dead man didn't have a briefcase in his hand, did he? No. So, naturally, I wonder why not, he said wearily, as if explaining something to a stupid child. Maggie made an impolite and derisive noise. He didn't have on a diamond necklace either. Did you think of wondering where it disappeared to? That, he said, is harsh. She disapproved of him with a curled lip. If someone dropped you on the counter, she said, you wouldn't ring like a lead quarter. Suddenly she changed the subject. Punctured eardrum, probably, she said. He didn't follow that line of argument and shook his head as if bewildered, which he was. They tell me, she said, that's the best one to slip past on the draft board with. She appraised him. Not so old as you look, she said. "And You don't look old. Twenty-seven, he said. I mislaid my glasses, she said, but that suit doesn't look like a uniform. How come? Punctured drum, he said, apathetically. So you pop up in a neighborhood where a man with tailor-made clothes has no reason to be, just in the nick of time to see a part-time gorilla get fogged, with ideas about briefcases and a mouthful of bad advice. Very, very uncopacetic. Right, he said. The taxicab business, Maggie said, is a funny racket. Enlarge on that. You see life, Maggie said. If all the things that happen in hacks were laid end to end, somebody would know too much. The riding public thinks a dollar tip will buy a basket full of shut mouth, Taxi drivers get bored with capers that would tear the ears off a scandal columnist. An Arab would throw the Arabian Nights in the ash can if he drove a cab for a month. If you think this little kick-up tonight is a novelty, you don't know your onions. Which leads up to what? he asked. Leads up to this, Maggie said. If you smell something cooking, you don't ask what's on the stove. There's one answer to all questions— no-speak English. Then you keep healthy. All the same, he told her. Some person might cling to the idea that you did peek in the bag. His error, Maggie said. And here are the peelers. Shemansky and his aides came trampling in with cordial greetings. What gives, he said. You saw it outside? Yeah, Marty's in it. I hear a noise like a shot, Maggie says. I take a look-see. There's your corpse, like that. Shemansky nodded and peered with hostility at Dougal Maybe. Who's he? he asked. Ignore him, Maggie said. He's ex post facto. Oh, Shemansky said and grinned. He walked outside with his aides and inspected the body. Who is it? he asked. Small-time Hood, said Sergeant Marty Connor. Name of Soup Bellows. I thought I knew him. Now who would waste a hunk of lead on him? Call the boys with the long basket, Marty. Nobody evinced much interest. In 20 minutes, Body and the police were gone. Clearly, said Mr. Mabee, Soup Bellows was expendable. Dime a dozen, Maggie said sleepily. I'm closing the dump better take your pierced eardrum and put it to bed after said maybe such social amenities as coffee and hamburger not with you maggie said you baffle me see you on judgment day and that'll be too soon she locked the place and walked down the street maybe taking one step to her two walked beside her at the corner she said i go left you go right I can only try, he said. You can never tell. Maggie looked up from her desk at the man who entered her cubicle at the garage. Morning, Maggie, he said genially. We don't want any, Maggie said shortly. He sat down in the wobbly wooden chair and lighted a cigar. He was a broad man with a square face and a diamond ring, about forty, and his eyes were too small under bushy eyebrows. He tried to look slick, but was too massive for it. Don't be like that, he protested. I didn't like your father either, Maggie said, or your brother Ed or any McCarthy that ever lived. Was he related to you or not? Sime. McCarthy ignored this unfavorable observation. It's a tough rocket, he said. "'What, with gasoline and tires and no drivers? "'And like to get tougher?' "'Your fender-crumpling hyenas don't make it easier,' she said. Well, "'I suppose that toots you got driving for you needs a chaperone,' he said, without visible resentment. "'She took the whole side off of one of me hacks yesterday, and then swung on the driver with the jack handle. "'Fair competition, Syme.' "'All right,' You're here. Get it off your chest. What will you take for your fleet of heaps? he asked. Cash. What, she asked, do you want with the hacking business? It's legitimate. I started driving a cab and worked up? It's sentimental. Let's see. You got the numbers racket and the slot machines. You own the Purple Cab Company. That ought to be plenty for any McCarthy. What's the idea? I like things to go smooth, he said. How about five grand? No dice, she said. Name a figure. When my brother comes home from the war, she said, he'll have this business waiting for him. He'd rather have cash. You don't know my old man, Maggie said. Taxi cabs he can't fathom, but cash money, he'd find a way. I'll go 7500 hundred," Syme said. And that's nuisance value. I like it this way, Maggie said. Oh, I could make it very tough, Syme told her. Maggie got up and walked to the door. Toots, she called. Wipe off your hands. I got a job for you. You're giving the wrong answer, Syme said harshly. It stands, Maggie said as Toots, substantial as a brick warehouse, appeared in the door, rubbing together enormous hands. Maggie was casual. Sime here says he plans to make it tough for us. The McCarthy's, Toots said, and an expression of pleasant anticipation lighted her face. Never bathed on Saturday nights, but I can wash my hands afterwards. If you see trouble coming up the road, Maggie said, go out to meet it swinging both fists. There's more where Toots came from. Let him walk out this time, Toots. Don't I get a bop him, just one? Toots asked disconsolately. We don't start it, Maggie said. But we'll finish it if he starts. Is your business ended, Syme? What would you think? He asked, his eyes apprehensively on Toots. He got to his feet and made a show of boldness as he walked to the door and brushed past the broad expanse of the lady taxi driver. Toots grinned in his face. We're going to have fun, she said avidly. My old man used to say the sweetest sound was a ring of a locust club on the skull of an enemy. The telephone sounded, and Maggie lifted the instrument. McTigg Taxi Service, she said. Bolton Wise speaking. How are all the little transportation problems? Hello, Bolt. Not a problem in a carload. Maggie was smiling in a friendly way, for Boltwise was one of her favorite people. Where have you been? How's your mother? I've been away. Washington and Africa and so on, painting general's portraits for posterity. Mother's fine, but I've got a problem. Leave me guess, Maggie said. You've got to toss a brawl for some visiting fireman and you need a comic. I've got to entertain this muggins. He sounds like something pretty ghastly. How about a helping hand? When? Tonight, dinner at eight, my studio. Maggie checked off days. Can do, she said. Wednesday's my night off. Who's the wet blanket? Name of Powell Le Coffin, Bolton told her. One of our lousier expatriates, I gather. Even the war didn't bring him home. Stayed on in Constantinople and other villages. A man I can't ignore wished him on me. There will be about a dozen sufferers tonight. Come early, eh? With bells on, Maggie said. The day that followed was routine. Before seven o'clock, she went home to dress, and at a quarter before eight, she arrived at Bolton Wise's studio on the top floor of the Halesburg Hotel. It was a large studio with excellent north light and with comfortable furniture and none of the smudgy confusion generally present in the working apartments of an artist. Bolton was a tall spare man, with hair commencing to frost. Whenever Maggie thought of the word gentleman, it was personified by Bolton. He was a little deaf, and his voice was low, and he was a gentle, kindly man. His cheeks were ruddy, and he loved to make up ridiculous stories about impossible events— which he would tell with a perfectly grave face, as if they were important history. It was easy to see how glad he was to have her come, and it made Maggie feel nice inside. It was a few minutes after eight when Paul Lecoffin arrived. You could not guess his age, which might have been thirty-five or forty-five. He had a look of overbreeding, as if he had a great many ancestors all of whom had inhabited precious regions apart from such common things as toil and vulgar business. His hair was so pale a yellow that it seemed white at first glance. His face was narrow, and his head from front to back extraordinarily long. In a delicate and supercilious way, he was rather handsome. The general impression was one of fragility. Corn beef and cabbage, Maggie whispered would upset his stomach. When he was introduced and spoke, Maggie was surprised, because although there was just the merest hint of a lisp, his voice was musical and strong. Charmed, he said as he bowed to Maggie. His dinner jacket was perfect upon his shoulders, and his trousers hung in exactly the right way. It was gracious of Mr. Wise to make me welcome in your city. Maggie was perversely moved to smash some dishes in the china shop. It's one hell of a swell burg," she said flatly. Mr. Coffin's shoulders twitched, and his eyes widened for an instant. He recovered himself and showed small, even teeth. Ah, the local pride of American cities, he said. Take the weight off your feet, Maggie said politely. On the other hand, we're shy of those cultural resources which are commonplace in the more ancient cities of Europe. Take painting. We ain't hepped to the masterpieces. Except now and then an exhibition that ladles out a chance acquaintance with the visual expression of those damn deep-seated emotions that bind together all human souls, and which make painting, of all the arts, the universal language. Mr. McCoffin went back on his heels. Bolton Wise quivered and coughed into his handkerchief, and felt that there were moments when life was worth living. "'Oh, ah, precisely,' said Mr. Coffin. "'Unfortunate, what? "'Unsatisfied craving for culture and that sort of thing?' "'What's your racket?' Maggie asked with cozy interest "'as he seated himself beside her. "'I,' said Mr. McCoffin, "'am a mere spectator. "'I watch with interest, but I do not participate.' Smart baby, Maggie assured him. If we knew the same crowd, we could dish the dirt. That's always fun. But we don't. If we can't find what the books on etiquette call a mutual interest, you can make passes at me and I'll fend you off. It passes away the time and you never can tell. You, said Mr. McCoffin, are a rather astonishing young person. Is there any subject you are keen to discuss? Taxicabs. Maggie said, "Why are you interested in taxicabs? They're my racket." She told him, "I chaperone a bevy of hacks for a living." His eyes narrowed a trifle. "You wouldn't," he asked, with some coldness in his voice, "be spoofing me, would you, Nick's friend? I'm Maggie Mctig of the Mctig Taxi Cab Service." He turned and his eyes were keen as they scrutinized her. "'Was there any special reason why you introduced this subject?' he asked. "'Only,' she answered, "'because it's my passion.' "'Am I to understand that you personally operate such a business?' "'Me? I run five of the lousiest broken-down hacks on the road.' "'But,' he said, "'you're here, a guess.' in the best society the city affords. I do not understand. It's because, she said, I'm Maggie Matig. She said this without vanity. Somehow, he said after a slight pause, the name is familiar, in some connection. What could it be? You might, she said, have read my publicity in the morning paper. A man got himself shot outside my place. Fancy, exclaimed Mr. Coffin. His face became blank, and a shadow passed over his eyes, leaving them dull and expressionless. Why was he shot? The gunman didn't tell me, she said. Did you know the man? Never saw him before. Say, you can be interested in something, can't you? But, weren't you curious? Did you not ask questions? If, said Maggie, you never ask questions, you never get embarrassing answers. Coffin persisted. Didn't the man have any property? Was he robbed, or was it part of one of these so-called gang wars? Darling, Maggie said. She called everyone darling indiscriminately, using the word as much as the ordinary person uses Mrs. or Mr. I wouldn't give a highly-flavored good tinker's damn if he was the prime minister in disguise assassinated by hirelings of the Grand Duke. Before he could frame another question, Bolton Wise came back to them. We're all here, he announced. Shall we dine? Mr. Coffin, will you take in Miss McTig? Honored, said Coffin. As per usual, Maggie said, the McTig has to sing for her supper. The guests took their places about the table. Coffin lifted a glass and held it up to the light, admired it. Exquisite, he said. "'Carpathian, is it not?' "'Undefiled Halesburg,' Wise answered with a smile, "'made in our own local factory. "'But you're right about its being Carpathian. "'Our skilled glass workers come from that country. "'We have quite a population of them.' "'Beautiful little country,' Coffin said. "'Beautiful, but tumultuous.' "'Have you visited Carpathia?' asked Wise. "'Oh!' Ah, indeed, yes, a favorite spot of mine. I have many friends in that land. Maggie did not commonly speak without weighing her words. Even her most outrageous indiscretions were works of art rather than conversational blunders. But this time she did not think, because Coffin irked her. She wanted to explode something under him, to jar the lackadaisical surface of him. Did one of your pals, she asked, Happened to be a rabbit by the name of Iskander Gorob? Mr. McCoffin put down his glass carefully, as if he were afraid he might break it, and there was a little pause. The whole table paused as if a silencing hand had been laid upon it. Coffin turned his head slightly and looked into Maggie's eyes, and she repented her indiscretion. She did not like what she saw in those eyes. Iskander Gorob, he said lispingly. May one ask where you heard that name? Oh, she said, we print all the local Carpathian tidbits for our Carpathian subscribers. He turned his eyes away and smiled thinly. That could, he said, of course be true. Sometime, sometime soon, Miss Matig, we must talk together about Carpathia. Fascinating topic. "'Let's,' said Maggie, with a hollow feeling in the pit of her stomach. She could not have explained it, why she suddenly was quelled and weighted down by a cloud of premonition. "'Don't,' she said with an attempt at off-handedness. Let your soup get cold while we discuss it. Coffin lifted sleek shoulders and smiled with equally sleek courtesy toward his host. "'I find Miss Matig a fascinating dinner companion,' he said. "'So do we all,' "'answered Wise. "'I hope,' Coffin said courteously, "'she will permit me to develop the acquaintance.' "'Maggie Matig extricated herself from Mr. Coffin from the party "'and quietly disappeared. "'As she walked through the lobby of the hotel, "'she saw a tall figure drooping against a column, "'looking as if his spine were made of rubber. "'Never had she seen a young man who looked so completely bored.' My goodness, he exclaimed. Hello, Harvard, she replied. Amherst, he said wearily. Amherst. On second thought, I like you better on overalls. She eyed him with disfavor. You look, she said, as if you slept in that suit. Wrong, he said. I haven't slept. His eyes looked it. Park benches all occupied? she asked. Some day, he told her. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to hibernate. Interesting people at the party? How? she asked. Do you know I was at one? A mere surmise. I surmise often. Now take expatriates, for instance. We were talking about expatriates? No, she said. As a topic, he said, they're useful. Do you admire the specimen on display? Mr. Coffin? Curious, very curious, he said in his tired voice. You run to form. Corpses on the sidewalk and Coffin's at the party. Macabre, I call it. What's about Mr. Coffin? Do you know him? Only, he answered by hearsay, Footprints on the sands of time, the sands of Constantinople, Bucharest, and waypoints such as Carpathia. Maggie puckered her eyes and looked at him with suspicion. What's cooking anyhow? What have you got on the stove? What's with Mr. Coffin? Why do the boys make with guns and clutter up sidewalks with dead punks? Including briefcases, said Mr. Maybe. What briefcases, she said offishly. "'and glassblowers?' "'Glassblowers?' he asked. "'Carpathians,' she said. "'They're allergic to it. "'Why, for the sake of making the conversation click, "'does your Mr. Coffin almost bite a hunk "'out of a Carpathian glass "'when I let drop the name Iskander Gorob?' "'His weary eyes opened a trifle wider "'and closed again. "'And why would you let drop the name Mr. Gorob?' To see, she said, if it would cause a ripple. Did it? he asked. It caused, she said, a baby tidal wave. Tidal waves, he said, inundate cities, including young women who let drop names out of turn. So you did peek into the briefcase. We always go back to that, she said. I'm afraid so, he said. I'm afraid other people will get back to it. He sighed and straightened up from the pillar. Naughty people with low, suspicious minds. He puckered his long face and wagged his head reluctantly, as if movement were painful to him. I thought you were a smart little mick. Thought maybe you could find your way from here to there. But you go mentioning names to coffin just to be comical. Did anybody laugh? "'What's your foot doing in this door?' she asked. "'You seem to be drawing cards. "'You're awful prevalent. "'Every place I look, there you are. "'You're my $64 question.' "'I'm just the sort of a kind of a character,' he said, "'that tries to be around when a dollar goes rolling uphill. "'Might roll sideways into my pants pocket.' "'You haven't the build for it,' Maggie said. "'For what?' "'A sharpshooter.' they have to stay awake. I don't know why I bother to make talk with you. Maybe just to see if you'll fold up like an accordion. Can you manage to stop being part of the scenery? I'm just around, he said complainingly. You keep blundering into the picture. Going home? I told you, she said. I'm going to the garage. I'll see you get there, he said. You will not, she said sharply. One of us must be wrong. It's probably you. It certainly is you. He fell in beside her. Maggie glanced up and down the street and saw a taxi waiting at the cab stand. She put her fingers to her mouth and whistled shrilly. Mr. Maybe flinched. Whistling girls, he said regretfully. And crowing hens, she finished for him, know how to get home in the dark. The taxi backed and stopped under the canopy of the hotel. How goes it, Toots? asked Maggie. Just unloaded a party, Toots said. Grab the stand. What's with the fender? One of them monkeys got rough, Toots said. I heard a gong after. Sounded to me like an ambulance. He was heading for a plate glass window when I seen him last. Pile in. Maybe open the door for Maggie and maybe put one foot in after her. Nix. "'Maggie said sharply. "'This cab's taken.' "'I belong to the Share-A-Ride Club,' he said patiently. "'Toots,' Maggie said. "'This long string of spaghetti has wrong ideas.' "'Toots' bulk descended from behind the big wheel. "'Hello, mister,' she said amiably. "'Pleased to meet you, Toots. "'Now, you're a girl of experience. "'Do I look like a wolf?' Anything, Toots said, that wears pants is a wolf. Toots, said Mr. Maybe. Take my word for it. It's a good idea for me to ride with Miss McTig to the garage. Did you look at me thoroughly? Besides, Miss McTig doesn't really object. She's just making unsociable noises. He smiled at Toots, and there was something in his smile that made Toots grin back at him. Get in," she said. "You two got to work out your social program. I ain't no chaperone." Maybe got in beside Maggie and closed the door. A rare judge of character, Toots," he said. Maggie was aloof and silent. The cab got into motion. Maybe found room for his long legs and rested his head against the back of the seat, but his eyes were open and alert. They turned off the wide street and rattled along westward. Not rapidly. It was a little city, which sprawled along the river with residential suburbs on either wing, and Maggie's garage was in that old section of town near the freight yards of the railroad. To reach it, one must cross the boulevard and pass through a maze of mean streets, dark and inclement. Maybe made no effort to entice Maggie into conversation, which was unbearable to her, she abhorred silence. All right, she said sulkily. So you muscled in. Don't sit like a bump on a log. Nothing to say, he answered sleepily. This money, she said, that's rolling up hill. is it big money? If any, he said, it would be millions. Hot money, she asked. Torrid, he answered. A sedan driven by a chauffeur passed them with a rush. Maybe turned his head quickly and moved as if to sit erect, but nothing happened. The car simply went past on its way. Maggie grinned. You've been going to the movies, she said. Expect a Tommy gun to mow us down out of that car? I'm a very nervous man, he said. A taxicab swished past and after the next intersection put on speed and overtook the sedan. Maybe was sitting erect now, leaning forward to peer through the glass in the front. The taxi overtook the sedan and crowded it toward the curb. There was no bust of gunfire, nothing but a squealing of brakes as the larger car tried to save itself. Its wheels struck the curb, jumped it, and the big car slewed broadside against a fireplug. The taxi cab stopped, and two men leaped out. "'Give it the gun, Toots,' said Mr. Maybe. Toots banged her fist down on the horn, which blared, and stamped on the gas. "'Anybody's rumbus, she asked, feeling with her free hand for the stinson wrench on the seat beside her. The two men who alighted from the cab ran to the door of the sedan, but at the sound of Toots' horn and the squealing of her brakes, they halted, turned, stood hesitant a moment, and then ran back to their cab. They leaped inside and the taxi roared away down the street. "'Better part of valor,' said Maybe. "'I'm inquisitive.' "'You're a carrier,' Maggie said. "'Things happen around where you are.' They got out of the cab and walked over to the sedan, and Maybe opened the door and looked inside. The frightened chauffeur cowered. On the back seat was a woman, only dimly visible. She was in evening dress, and her shoulders were white in the darkness.' Condition satisfactory? Asked maybe. Yes, yes, thank you. What happened? I was frightened. Her voice and accent were not American, but they were not Latin or Teutonic. Maggie thought they were British. As the door opened, the interior of the car was flooded with light, and its occupant was revealed. She was young, pale, slender, and exotically beautiful, with authentic old gold hair, and wonderful blue eyes and a discontented mouth. Unquestionably lovely, thought Maggie, but a touch theatrical and somehow familiar. Maggie wondered if it was the movies. Had she seen this girl's face on the silver screen? You're not hurt? Maybe asked. Only shaken. What happened? It was so sudden, I do not understand. Somebody, said Toots, was going to give you the business Robbery," asked the girl. Who knows? asked Maybe. Somehow it seemed to Maggie that his voice was less sleepy and his manner not so lackadaisical. You prevented it. I'm grateful, she said. I'm grateful, Mr. Maybe, he said. And my friend, Miss Matig, and her man-at-arms, Miss Toots. Can we be of further service? The chauffeur had crawled out and was examining the car. "What damage?" maybe asked. "Front wheel stove," said the man. "Then," said maybe, "we must drive you home. Your car's out of the running." "Thank you," she said. "You're gracious." He helped the young woman to alight and handed her to the taxicab, where she seated herself between maybe and maggie. "Where to?" he asked. She gave the address of a house in the more desirable part of town, and he repeated it to Toots. Maggie felt resentful. The British accent gave her a feeling of inferiority, and besides, the old man hated the British. She kept her tongue between her teeth, but maybe blurbed inanely. She disliked him for being thrown off his balance by an exotic face, and then disliked herself for noticing it. What was maybe to her? Less than the dust. He talked like a half-wit out of a society novel. But the strange young woman answered briefly. She did not give her name, though maybe obviously fished. Twenty minutes of driving brought them to a wide street of homes, set well back in spacious lawns. The stranger indicated a driveway into which Toots turned the cab. Maybe got down to open the door, and the young lady extended a courteous hand. Thank you, she said. "'Your arrival was most fortunate. "'I'm more than grateful.' "'She turned and mounted the steps quickly "'and admitted herself to the dark house with a latch key. "'After all,' said Maggie tartly, "'she could have invited us in for a beer.' "'There wouldn't have been beer,' "'Maybe,' said, as he got in beside her. "'Goodness gracious me! "'How small the world has grown!' "'So it has,' said Maggie.' not asking what he meant by the observation because she had the glimmering of an idea. She was quite sure that Mr. Mabee knew very well the identity of the lady in distress, and it added another item to her score against him. He knew the girl, but the girl did not know him. Maggie sat back in grim silence. Mr. Mabee was a dubious character. He was a highly dubious character, and the fact that Maggie remembered where she had seen this young woman before did not decrease her reasonable suspicion of him. It had not been in the movies. It had been in real life. Maggie did not mention it, nor did she intend to mention it, but the face of the girl who had just left them was the face that had looked at her from the photograph contained in the briefcase, whose possession had already cost one man's life.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Taxi Taxi. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.